This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. And welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny Lavery. And with me in the studio this week is Noah Zazanis, an epidemiologist, writer, and prison abolitionist living in Queens. His writing can be found in The New Inquiry, Pluto Press's Transgender Marxism Anthology, and Obstetrics and Gynecology, The Green Journal. Noah, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. You can be found in so many places, and I'm so glad that you're here, uh, in part because uh, I, I often um, enjoy seeing seeing your opinions about the world around us, um, the world in which we live. I'm a big fan of having opinions, so always appreciate when they're enjoyed. Yeah, and as, as we sort of discussed before we started recording, a lot of today's letters uh, are part of our, I think, shared wheelhouses um, and involve a lot of, like, niches that I think we can speak to fairly well. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I am was looking over these letters and was like, oh, hell yeah, I'm ready for this. I'm always ready. Good. Okay. Well, then I think we should just get started immediately. And to that end, I will have you read our first letter. Sounds great. Let me pull it up. Here we go. Subject is don't ask my pronouns. I am a 34-year-old who is slowly becoming more and more sure I am non-binary. I was a traditional tomboy growing up. I work in a male-dominated field and have typical guy hobbies, think motorcycle racing. I never thought I was a boy, but while girl was always an uncomfortable fit, I learned to make my peace with it in my 20s, ironically, just as I was becoming more aware that there were more options available to me. My sibling came out as non-binary a couple of years ago, and it hasn't gone well with our family. No one is overtly transphobic to them, but no family members over the age of 50 will use they, them. It's too hard, and often confide in me that they don't get it. I've never understood society's obsession with gender, and I can't understand why these otherwise lovely people can't wrap their minds around a non-binary person years after coming out. Even if it is an adjustment at first, it all seems pretty straightforward to me. All of this is complicating my feelings around coming out. I don't feel gender dysphoria when people use she, her pronouns to refer to me, and I don't feel a need for any medical transition. I would love for people to stop putting feminine stereotypes on me, but honestly, I think most gendered stereotypes are bad for everyone. I feel torn. Half of me feels like a coward for not coming out. The other half of me feels exhausted by the thought of doing so. I live in a very liberal area and my family reliably votes liberally, but I still know this would be an uphill battle for years, if not indefinitely. Part of me also feels like I don't need a change, pronoun, surgery, et cetera. I should just carry on as is. But the itch in the back of my mind about this just isn't going away. I love this letter. It has so many of the elements that I I feel like like equipped to... uh, discuss and, and help somebody with. I, I This is relatively small, but I always love when somebody, you know, it makes sense to me if people are like, I want to disguise the name of someone I'm talking about or the exact nature of the industry I'm working in. But I love the like, I can't tell you my guy hobby, but you should think about motorcycle racing. Like it's <laughs> not motorcycle racing, but it's like it. Because now I'm just like, well, what is it? I want to know. The first paragraph of this just came off so much to me as like the transgender memoir genre, like very genre conscious of I always enjoyed playing with boy toys as a child. And so my first instinct is like, I'm not a doctor. Why are you doing this? Like, you don't have to do this. Um, And it just makes me very defensive for the letter writer to begin with. Like, you don't have to prove yourself right now, um, just to begin with. 
Yeah, I think especially kind of coupled with like I'm I'm already deciding that I don't need other things, but you know, in case uh, anyone asks, here are my credentials. And I think that all really ties into that bit in the middle of no one is overtly transphobic to them because letter writer, I, I have some bad news for you, which is everyone is overtly transphobic to them and to you all of the time. Um, you need to redefine what you consider overtly transphobic because, honey, this is it. Yeah, I mean, I can think of something much less, you know, trans-inclusive than I am going to consistently misgender you and refuse to use your pronouns or acknowledge your transness after several years. That's very explicit. Yeah, I think in a moment like this, maybe what the letter writer is trying to suggest is like, no one has run my sibling over with their car. Or like, they they aren't screaming in the middle of the night outside of their window, we're going to kill you. But like, that's a very low bar. This is absolutely qualifies as overt transphobia. I think the reason that you want to say this is not overt transphobia is because this has been part of your family culture your whole life. Um, if you were to really, I think, acknowledge even only to yourself how much your family and like society generally sort of runs on transphobia, like more than Duncan's, it runs on transphobia, you would feel isolated, overwhelmed, and hurt even more than you already do. But, I, you know, especially when it comes to thinking about transition or how to support a sibling who's come out, uh, you ha- you have to start from a place of being able to acknowledge reality. So I think that that's maybe the first place to start here, which is that you live in a riotously transphobic environment. Absolutely. And I think the unsubtle but subtle enough to deny transphobia that this person's bathing in like water is making it really hard for them to think seriously about what they want. Like I did a control F for the word want in this letter and couldn't find it because it's so much like, do I have to do this or do I not have to do this? And letter writer, you don't have to do anything, but I would like you to be able to think about what you want to do. Yeah. I I mean, I agree. I think that kind of rush for, I don't feel dysphoria when people use she, her pronouns for me, and I don't feel a need for any medical transition. Okay. Like, sure. I guess like you you don't have to feel or want any of those things. It's just like it 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 feels very like, oh, I'm not hungry. I already ate. And it's like, yeah. Are you not hungry? Or like do you not have enough money to like get a group dinner? Because those are two different things. Right. I mean, the things that are being said here, other than I don't feel dysphoria, are girl was always an uncomfortable fit, but I've made peace with it. And the subject, don't ask my pronouns, which implies that you're unhappy giving the answer she, her. Yeah. And so again, like none of this is to say, letter writer, it would be good if you started feeling wildly uncomfortable every time (laughs) someone used she, her for you. I don't want to push you in any given direction. Um, I just think that it's, it, it seems to me like one of the ways that you have been able to fly under the radar when your sibling kind of hasn't been able to is you've made a real part of your persona sort of easy to get along with. Um, I don't ask for very much. Uh, Whatever's good. I've made my peace with things. Uh, I am aware that if I were to ask anything from my relatives, they wouldn't give it to me and they would start bitching about me to other people. So my solution to that is I don't want anything. But then I have this sort of weird inchoate dissatisfaction that I can't quite put words to. And 
you know, let let us put some words to it. And again, like if we say these things, if we make these suggestions and you just think that sounds way off base, the good news is, you know, this is not legally binding. We don't know who you are. We can't follow up with you in any way. Like you're free to ignore us. But I think that the reason that you really want to stress on the one hand, your sort of credentials for some sort of like location within a larger trans and or non-binary umbrella um, is because you want to be identified by a, a trans community perhaps, but not by your family. So you want to try to figure out like, how do I straddle this so that I can like maybe get a little more, but not need more and certainly not want more <laughs> because then my family will try to take it away. Yeah. I mean, the good news there is that it is very possible to be out to your friends or to the people who ask you your pronouns and to not be out to your parents who you don't seem to want to have the conversation about your pronouns with. Having tried that, I unfortunately can't guarantee that you will always be happy with it forever, but I do think it's a better solution than the all or nothing, I can't even feel dysphoric because if I do, I'll have to come out to my parents' solution. Right, or that like dysphoria only looks like shuddering as if you've been struck by lightning when someone right, says yeah. she, as opposed to, gosh, my whole life I've kind of wanted something that I didn't really know existed. Uh, there's no words for that. Some loneliness. It, it kind of seems like you have found the words for that, in fact. And, but I get why it's uncomfortable to claim those words. I guess why it's uncomfortable to be like, I am more and more sure every day that I'm non-binary when your family has made it very clear to your sibling that while they are not going to run them over with a truck, they're not going to accept or acknowledge it either. Yeah. So I guess at this point, there's sort of two questions here that I'm interested in. One is like, to what degree can you consider pursuing like coming out or exploring possible ideas about what being non-binary might look like for you that have nothing to do with your family, that don't involve having like a bunch of annoying conversations with your great aunts. But I think maybe first I want to think a little bit more about, you know, letter writer, you say that you feel like a coward for not coming out. I wonder if you feel like a coward for not doing more to stand up for your sibling. You don't say anything about your relationship with your sibling. You don't say whether you two are close, whether you like one another, um, whether they lean on you for support. You don't say much about what, if anything, you've kind of said on their behalf to other relatives. And my my understanding is that when you say the family members over the age of 50 are often confiding in you that you don't, quote, get it, you are at most being very, very gentle and saying like, well, you know, here's what maybe it means. And at, at, at sort of worst, you're not letting them know that you disagree at all. So if you want to accuse yourself of cowardice, I'll let you. And I'll suggest that maybe you're being a coward on your sibling's behalf. Um, and that's where some of that fear is coming from. You also don't have to call yourself a coward. I'm not, I'm not going to call you a coward. But like, if that fear is coming up, maybe that's why. No, I very much agree with that. I got a little stuck on the do I or don't need to come out question because that's such a rich well of information. But I think the answer to, you know, do you as a, as a human and also as somebody who thinks you might be non-binary yourself, oh, your sibling an obligation of solidarity, I'm comfortable straightforwardly saying yes to that one. Yeah. And you don't have to come out to offer that solidarity. Um, Not at you all. Could, yeah. You could, for example, say, you've told me you don't get this. 90 times. Stop telling me. I know. I think that's dumb. I don't think you have to get it in order to exhibit basic respect. And also, I think it's easy to get. Say that. Yeah, the I don't get this explanation, as the letter writer seems to know, 
is, I don't know how much I'm supposed to cuss on this podcast. It's bunch bullshit. It's yeah. like, they've had several years to get it. They could have, you know, read up about non-binary people on the internet if they really wanted to, but it's just more convenient and fitting their priors to just disregard it as some young people nonsense. Yeah. Uh, you know, it seems pretty self-evident to me that the relatives in question are not willing to go all out and say, I am transphobic officially. I will never support you. Um, but neither do they want to actually try. So they just want to keep stressing. It's too hard. It's too confusing. I don't get it. I am perpetually on the first day of school. Like every day I wake up, it's like Groundhog's Day. It's my first day at kindergarten. I don't know what a pencil sharpener does. Uh, I don't know where my shoes are. I'm so lost. Can you please help me? And that's obviously, I think, a bullshit condition because everybody, if they try a little for years and years, will get a little bit better at anything. Like even if you don't get great at it, you'll show a little improvement. Um, so I believe that that's a choice. I believe it's a nonsense choice. And I believe that uh, you don't have to humor it. And again, you can do all of this without coming out to your family. Um, you can just let it be known you are no longer available to smile and nod while they say things like, gosh, the word they, what does it mean? I mean, is it a river? Is it a book? Is it my friend? Is it my enemy? I just, I couldn't say, I couldn't, I couldn't begin to say like, you can put a stop to that right now. And I think that will go a long way towards making you feel less worried about your own cowardice. And like, you don't have to step gingerly around them as much as you might otherwise. And then you can maybe turn some more of your attention to, well, who are people in my life or who are people that I could get to know a little better who I might like to talk about coming out to who aren't immediately going to be assholes about it and, and focus on that. Focus your energy there. I really, for all that I think it's worth uh, pulling a, a harder line with your relatives, I don't by any means want to say the only way you can feel like collected and together and and um, like self-actualized is if you come out to all of them tomorrow and have a bunch of come to Jesus conversations. You absolutely don't have to do that. But it just feels like that last paragraph is so anxious about stressing that you don't need anything. You don't really want anything when you clearly do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be writing all of this. You wouldn't be thinking so you know, carefully about what it meant to be a tomboy as a child or, um, you know, your feelings about gender stereotypes now. Like, you want things. You need things. The thing about gender stereotypes really struck me because it was, I just don't get why people think gender is so important in this letter, which is all about your feelings about gender. And that reads like cope to me a little bit because you've, you know, made an identity out of being the possibly non-binary person in your family who is not out, who is not making a big thing out of it. And it makes me wonder if you understand why it's important for your sibling to make a big deal out of this in a way that's been a little bit difficult for them and is causing all this, not causing anything, but is not doing the tactical avoidance that you're doing. Yeah. And so, you know, letter writer, I will just like affirm, you know, you say you live in a liberal area and your family votes liberally, but you're also aware that doesn't make them not transphobic. Co-signed, yes. Liberal people are often, you know, transphobic. In, in nearly identical ways to other types of people. Uh, it is a, a common feature across the board. Um, and, and, you know, you know, this would be an uphill battle for years. Like, you know, you're, you're talking to two transsexuals here. So clearly, you know, I mean, I guess you didn't know Noah was going to be here on the show, but you, you knew I'd be answering it. Um, I'm familiar with uphill battles. I get you. I agree. I've also done it. 
Sorry, that's a little like bitchy. That's a little like, well, guess what, pal? I, I mean, went you know I'm inclined hill. to be bitchy too about this. It's just like, if you're looking for sympathy about how hard it would be to transition, it's always difficult to ask someone who has transitioned to be like, wow, yeah, that'd be so-. like, yes, it would. And, and you have my like sympathy and support there, but also come on, like, yeah, it's uphill. You know how many of my relatives I talk to? None. The thing I'll also say is that I, in fact, before I came out as, you know, this flavor of trans, I was out as non-binary for five to seven years, depending on how you count, and was very much in a situation of, okay, my parents know I use they, them pronouns, but refuse to use it. And isn't it so good they aren't kicking me out of the house? Um, And want to just reiterate what we already said about that still overt transphobia. Sorry, mom, if you're listening to this. And that puts you in a position, both your sibling who's already done it and you, the onlooker, the bystander even, as being afraid to want anything else, being like, okay, we're at this Cold War detente, but if I push for anything else, it could go nuclear at any moment. And that's a structural situation that the transphobes in your family are putting you in And it's something that your sibling probably also is feeling and that if you don't feel like you can discuss with them, maybe some amends need to be made and some conversations to be had. Yeah. And, you know, letter writer, I I know I've been a little bit brisk, so I want to like come back into a position of like care and support because you you sound like a lovely person. You sound like you've been kind of going through it with your family and you want to do, you know, interesting, exciting, valuable, pleasurable things. And I want all of those things for you. So, um, please know that any like briskness on my end about like, it'll be tough is not coming from a place of just like pure toughen up buttercup, but a little bit of like, yeah, that part doesn't go away. People don't usually come out because their families like on a whim and out of nowhere decided to suddenly get cool. Um, That's always one of the features of transition is like most people don't want you to do it. And so you kind of, if you are hoping or waiting for the world to someday change on that front, my guess is you will not ever pursue any elements of transition and that may be fine and it may feel sad and kind of the only way to know is to check in with you again on your deathbed and I don't know when that's going to be. So I I guess my last thought there is just about that last line. I really, I I feel so much familiarity with, I feel like if I don't need a change, I should just carry on as is. And you can apply that to so many different elements of like sexuality, transition, et cetera. I, I remember being like 16 and like writing my little journal that I barely ever wrote in like, oh, I really hope I'm just like the kind of bisexual that like dates girls between boyfriends and I like never have to tell my mom. Um, and like that didn't work out. So I'll just say, you know, this doesn't mean you have to do anything differently, but maybe just take a little time to imagine what might you want to pursue if you did not have at the sort of front of your mind making sure that you don't need to tell your family anything that might upset them. Like pretend that they were all just hit by a bus just for fun. It's fun for me. Um, and then imagine like, what would you do if you were totally free? And that doesn't mean then like, okay, now you have to do it. If you thought about it, like you're committed, it just might be a useful thought experiment, like absent this, like pretty intense set of restrictions that it sounds like you have felt bound by in a lot of ways. Like, and maybe even where like, I've, I've been able to enjoy certain freedoms as a result of being like a quote unquote traditional tomboy. And so within this pretty repressive, like system of my family, I've gotten more than others have. And I'm worried that if I try to push it, I'll lose the like, it's cool that she likes motorcycles. And I'll be in the category of like the bad non-binary sibling like my sibling is. Um, 
yeah, I'm also a little curious, like to what degree trans misogyny might be playing like uh, an effect here. But again, I don't know enough about the sibling in question to um, make a ruling. But yeah, I mean, just like think about it in terms of I I need so little that no one ever has to know because that doesn't sound like a very joyful framework for thinking about um, embodiment or pleasure um, or the future. And and try thinking about other terms, and then, you know, uh, yeah. See 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 where it goes from there. I would love to hear back from you. Right back if any of this, you know, is, pr- produces sort of interesting thoughts for you. Um, if you listen to it and you're just like, I hate you. That was really rude. <laughs> try again. Um, let me know. I would be happy to try again. Um, and good luck. And check in with your siblings. See how they're doing. Yeah. No. I mean, despite all my bitchiness, I really do know what this feels like and wish you the best because it's fucking hard. Absolutely. I mean, vividly, I remember various moments where I was like, I can't lose my family. And like today, I made a tuna sandwich in a slightly new way. And I burst into tears because I was like, I wish I could call my mom because, you know, she and I often had that kind of relationship where I would say like, I found a new way to make a tuna sandwich. And she'd be like, oh my gosh, tell me everything. And it was just like this nothing little exchange of information that was nonetheless like incredibly intimate and loving and had to do with like pleasure. And it's so specific. It's like, I would, I didn't want to tell anyone else about it. I wanted to tell my mother specifically. And I just lost it. And that was really sad and really hard. And then I went and I talked to my wife about it. And I talked about it with another friend and I let myself be sad. And then I ate my sandwich and I kept going on with my day. Like, you know, I I guess like I always want to try to find ways to incorporate the unbearable into a life that is centered on pleasure. Because it's like if you live your life trying to avoid the unbearable, all you'll do is flinch and you'll still get hit with that bolt someday eventually anyways. Like if nothing else, if you preserve this like perfect frictionless relationship with all of your relatives, someday still they're going to die. And you're going to hit the bolt and, and you just got to be prepared for it to come. Um, and on that note, I should move us on to our next letter. It was a great sandwich too. I, I just also want to like thank Helen Rosner because I was reading her thing about tonato sauce and she was like, you, you put in a half an anchovy with the tuna and uh, I put in half an anchovy with the tuna and it was so good. It was like extra tuna kind of. All right, so question number two. As you know, I think I I try not to worry over much whether or not a question is like quote unquote fake, just in part because like I get paid either way. And also because it's sort of impossible to verify what strangers uh, on the internet are saying to you. Um, and of course, things like this can happen. Um, but it 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 did feel almost like you're describing such a bad partner Surely you cannot expect anyone would read this and say anything other than break up with him. But maybe that's just uh, an assumption of mine because uh, certainly I have sometimes taken a while to break up with someone in my own life. Yeah, I was very confused by this question. I kept, I think because of what you're saying of, well, they just sound awful on all levels. My brain went to, is there something I'm not hearing here? Is there some secret motivation that you don't have access to or that you're just not telling me, which, Mm. you know, it's just my charitable spirit, but. Okay. This is good. This is going to be a a good sort of uh, like inkblot test maybe to run into. So (laughs) the subject is untrusting and anxious. I'm in a relationship with Cal, who is the best partner I've ever had. They've met my family and friends and everyone adores them. 
We've dated for a year and had planned to move in together. Three months ago, we started trying out a poly situation. And ever since then, the way they treat me has changed. I did go out with someone else first. We discussed our agreements and I did everything I could to make sure that Cal felt supported. Cal's been dating Rachel. A couple of times, Cal has canceled on me or was late in favor of hanging out with Rachel. We had agreed not to cancel our date nights and that Cal wouldn't schedule dates with Rachel either immediately before or after hanging out with me. This was a compromise since I wanted to pause the poly stuff as we got ready to move in together and Cal has been moving really fast with her. They've also made a lot of decisions without talking to me. But in the past two weeks, they've canceled or ditched our dates three times. Once was because a friend was having a really tough time, and I get that. Once was because Rachel asked to hang out at the last minute and they wanted to cancel on me. I reminded them that that would hurt my feelings. They didn't end up going, but they canceled on me anyways because they were too tired to be, quote, kind and tender with me like I asked. And they ditched me again two nights ago after I ran into an ex and an assailant at a night out. Then they went out with their friends and texted me that they were in trouble and that I should call soon and ignored my calls and texts. Since then, they said it's just because they need more time with their friends. I'm fine with that. I just don't get why it has to happen on the nights we already have plans that they made. I don't know what to do. I want to try and let them rebuild trust before deciding to break up or not. But when they ask what they can do, I don't know what to tell them. What are good ways to rebuild trust? Should I just walk away? Is this normal when transitioning into poly, or is my partner just kind of mean? I'm not planning on moving in until this gets sorted. I am glad that the letter writer is not planning on moving in with Cal right now. I think that's really, really good. Yeah, I agree. It seems like whether or not the partner is kind of mean or not, it just seems like neither of you are happy right now. Yeah, I I think that that feels pretty straightforwardly true. There's definitely some information that's missing. I, I, I don't know if it was a shared idea to try out being poly. Um, if it was, then the letter writer like fairly quickly decided, actually, I'd like to pause this because this isn't going the way that I had hoped. Um, and then Cal said, no, I don't want to do that. That, you know, that feels worth maybe starting with for me, I think. Um, not that that necessarily makes Cal like an evil person who hates consent. But if you say to your partner, I am having a difficult time with the way that like our approach to polyamory is working and I would like to pause it and they say no, that's pretty big. That's an indicator that whatever compromises might be available after that are not going to be especially um, satisfactory maybe. Yeah, it it seems like just on so many levels, there are incompatible wants here in a way that, first of all, I think it sucks that it seems like Cal is getting everything they want. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know the other things being unsaid here, but if that's what's going on, that the compromises are mostly unsatisfactory to you, that's itself a problem. And also, if you just want different things, then it at best, you're at an impasse, you know? Sorry, I'm being very big, but... No, not at all. I mean, I, I think I'm right there with you. Like, there's a lot of detail, especially in the sort of middle paragraphs and, like, lots of specifics about, like, who's going out with friends on what night. And, like, I ran into an ex and former assailant, and then my partner couldn't be there for me. And then on another occasion, my partner wouldn't go out with me because they said they were too tired from discussing our polyamorous arrangement to be nice to me. You know, 
Um, again, without saying this is definitive proof that Cal is mean, I think I feel pretty confident saying Cal has not uh, been especially nice to you or honest or straightforward. And so, you know, I'm not quite so... You say I want to try and let them rebuild trust before deciding to break up or not, which almost makes it sound like you feel like it would be unfair to break up with Cal without first going through, like, due process. And I just want to say, like, this is not an episode of JAG. You have great reasons to break up right now. Um, Yeah, I think that's why I'm hedging on the is Cal mean question, because I get this sense from the letter writer that if Cal's not mean, we can't break up. If Cal's not wronging me, we can't break up. And... So my instinct is just like, if you two want totally different things and Cal doesn't seem to be putting in that much effort to spend time with you, that's a good enough reason. Yeah. And I can understand why it might feel kind of like difficult to wrap your mind around because, you know, uh, this is the best partner I've ever had. Up until three months ago, things were going great, I thought. Um, we've been together for a year, so I was really thinking like maybe we were going to, you know, be a like long-term relationship. Um, and now that seems gone. And I can understand how that feels kind of bewildering and like difficult to wrap your head around. But I would also say like three months, a number of conversations, repeated broken dates, like you've put in the work, like you've done the investigating. If you were to break up with Cal now, I would not call that like precipitous or say that you like did it on a whim. Like I think you've done your level best to see if there's like a satisfactory compromise here. And it just seems, you know, at best, it seems like Cal's not really willing to be honest with you about how important their relationship with Rachel is to them. Yeah. Um, if, if it, my guess is their feelings are something more along the lines of, I don't consider you my primary partner and, and Rachel, like somebody who is secondary to that. Uh, I'm a little afraid to say that to you because I'm a, maybe a little worried you'd see that as a demotion. And again, that's like the kind of best case scenario. But like, it seems pretty clear to me that Cal actually does not want to be in a relationship where you both have kind of like veto power over whom the other dates or how often you see them, um, which is not itself evil. Uh, but the way that Cal is going about uh, managing that is pretty bad. Yeah, I think in a situation like this where you can't meet each other's needs. I think it's on both of you to say, hey, it seems like you want or need something that I can't do. And the letter writer has made it very clear that they don't want to do polyamory. They don't want Rachel to be a priority in Cal's life. Whereas it seems like Cal is not being upfront about, well, I do need Rachel to be a priority. I do need a non-hierarchical poly situation or something like that where they don't have to come home to you, basically. (laughs) And that's okay to need, but it's not okay to be so shifty about it in a way that leaves the letter writer feeling so confused and tossed aside. Yeah. And I would say too, sometimes it can be difficult to make a decision along these lines if your partner is saying one thing and doing another because you want to take them at their word. But, you know, letter writer, it seems to me like you are already a little bit suspicious when like that that line of like, since then Cal has said it's just because they need more time with their friends. I'm fine with that. I just don't get why it has to happen on the nights we already have plans. Like, like you, I am very suspicious that that is the whole story. I don't believe that Cal only needs more time with their friends. I think Cal doesn't want to, you know, be kind and tender uh, when Cal doesn't get what they want. And I think that that, that I will go so far as to say, like, that's mean, you know, like, that's actually mean. I th- that feels a little bit like stomping their foot and taking their ball and going home, like 
oh, I can't like go out with Rachel under these exact circumstances. Well, then guess what? I'm too tired to pretend I like you. Um, I think that's shitty. And um, I think you deserve better. I don't think you can believe them when they say this is just about wanting to spend more time with my friends. I think they're going for like a palatable justification for getting away from you um, that they don't think that you're going to fight them over. And I think you deserve better than that. Yeah, I think it sucks that this letter writer is in this position where they're like, should I break up with Cal when it's clear that Cal has done everything but break up with them is going out of their way to not be nice or spend time with them. And the shoe should be on the other foot here and it sucks that it's not. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really hard when it's like, you know, they're asking what to do to rebuild trust. I don't know what to tell them. And like, again, you know, letter writer, I would just say like, I don't think you should have to tell a partner I want you to be honest with me. I want you to do the things you say you're going to do. Um, I want us both to be willing to compromise and meet in the middle rather than me saying, okay, we'll keep doing polyamorous like stuff, even though I don't want to anymore. Um, you know, the fact that Cal is asking you like, gee whiz, what? Like to me, that's that, that harkens back to our first letter with the sort of like, gee whiz, they, them pronouns are just so hard. Like I actually don't think Cal's that stupid. Um, I don't think that Cal has no idea how to rebuild trust. Um, I think asking you is like a dodge and a deflection. And that if Cal were genuinely interested in rebuilding trust with you, they would have some pretty concrete ideas on how to do so. Um, I think Cal wants you to break up with them and is going to try to make you do it for them. And that sucks. Again, obviously, like the question of is this normal is never especially helpful, but like, is it normal in the sense of like, yeah, everybody does this and you just have to like suck it up? No. No. What? No. Yeah. And I think if the conversation is going, you know, this is just how polyamory works. Polyamory means you never get to have expectations of how I treat you or how much time I spend with you. I'm very comfortable saying that's not normal. If your needs aren't getting met and you're being treated like your needs don't matter, that's not cool. And you shouldn't have to deal with that. Right. And, you know, it would be, I, I could envision a scenario where they did still decide that they needed to break up, but where Cal was honest, like earlier, like when we started doing this, I thought we would have one sort of arrangement. And then I realized I actually don't want to have one primary partner who, you know, kind of has equal investment with me in deciding who or when I date other people. And I would like to be in a relationship where I make those decisions and like you and I have input about scheduling, but you don't get like right of recall. That would have been maybe painful for you if that's not what you wanted, but you could have at least, I think said, you know, I'm glad I know that. Let me figure out how to, you know, either mourn this loss and break up or figure out if there's a different kind of arrangement. This is just shitty. Break up with Cal. Um, don't try to rebuild trust. Yeah. This is great. I'm doing great. You're doing great. Um, let's leave behind this particular question then and and talk a little bit more about uh, your own particular like remit. So I do think of you, I think like probably one of the first times that I had like heard of your work was, and, and I think part of why I saved these questions for you, right, was like, you're sort of like, I, I would call it like gentle joshing of the sort of like, not like other girls approach to transition, if that makes sense. 
Do you understand that as being part of your remit or does that feel like a totally unhinged thing to say? No, I do see it as part of my whole deal. And I think it's, as I alluded to, is very much a very much a mea culpa of many, many years that I spent being like, well, of course I'm trans, but I'm not a trans man. I'm not one of those. I don't need all the trans man things that trans men need, which like, maybe you don't, some people don't, but me thinks the not lady doth protest too much. Yeah. That kind of like preemptively, I don't need anything approach to thinking about transition that can sometimes feel so protective, but in like real life can usually end up just being needlessly um, pleasure rejecting. Very much. Yeah. I, you know, as many people have talked about dissociation as a particular aspect of being a dysphoric person and somebody who's foreclosing the possibility of transition, especially And one of those kinds is the detaching oneself from any positive desire at all. In my case, it was exclusively understanding myself as a not woman and a not man. And, you know, there are non-binary people who experience their genders in a way that is about what they want rather than rejecting all the things that they don't want to be or are scared to be. But for me, I spent a lot of time telling myself why I wasn't allowed to do things or why I shouldn't want to be a guy in particular for feminist reasons. And I feel really sad about that. And so I'm often trying to tell people like, you don't have to do what I did. There's a better way. I think that makes a lot of sense. I've seen, I think, especially in light of like Nevada getting reissued lately, a lot of people kind of talking about like, what's that sort of like mid-transition preoccupation with like litigating other people's transitions where it's like, all right, it's not new and fresh for me anymore, uh, but I I still want to like somehow uh, like step back on the merry-go-round of like starting afresh, doing it right this time. And obviously, like I always want to think of myself as above such uh, milestones. I'm not. Um, And I think especially like for me, I often have this sort of fantasy of like, well, my transition wasn't perfect, but I can like help advise or encourage or just like dictate other people's lives such that I will make their transitions perfect. And then somehow we will achieve utopia. Yeah. The joke I've been making to my friends about coming on this podcast is I'm so excited to give solicited advice instead of the unsolicited kind. Um, And I too, in reading the Nevada re-release stuff, have felt a little bit like, Ooh, I am always doing, you know, you should transition discourse on the internet at the same time in defense of my whole deal. There's a lot of people doing you shouldn't transition discourse all the time on the internet and in the world. And while I'm not into bullying any individual person and being like, I know you better than you do, I do think it's Thank you for coming out as being (laughs) anti-bullying. That being said, I do think we have some kind of social obligation to other trans people to be like, hey, I've been down this road before. You don't have to listen to me, but here's how it felt. Um, And I don't think I'm above that. Because I don't know, because I'm grateful for the trans people that did that to me, even if half the time I was like, fuck you, you're not my real dad. A hundred percent. I mean, so much of this even like has to do with like, I just don't want to ever think of myself as being part of a type um, or following like a predictable model. But it's like, of course I am. Of course I am like at that level of like a kid who has smoked weed twice talking to a kid who has never smoked weed and being like, here's how you got to do it. Um, like, yeah, I'm not above like basic milestones of of human development. Um, and yeah, I think stressing the solicited uh, and you are free to do what you like. Um, but yeah, I absolutely always want to be, you know, doing it the best and like developing the one true way. Um, 
And and I think like if there was one thing that I wish I could have done differently, it would be not entertain so many stupid questions from cis people. And that's not to say that I wish that I had been rude uh, or that I wish I hadn't had like interesting, worthwhile conversations because plenty of the cis people in my life had questions that came from a place of, I don't know much about this, but weren't stupid. But there are many stupid questions that don't deserve uh, the time of day. And uh, I wish that I had said, gosh, that's stupid. Even if only to myself a little, like if somebody would be like, you know, oh, but you you want to transition to be a man, like, but sometimes they do bad stuff. And it's just like, Nobody transitions because they want to give a stamp of approval to what all men or all women have done. Like if if it works like that, you would only be transitioning whenever like either men or women had like earned enough, I don't know, complexity points that it was like, hey, good job. I'm coming over to your side. Like that's such a stupid thing to think. And I can't believe that I answered that question on part of a book tour. Yeah, I, you know, I wrote the new inquiry article on hating men and becoming one anyway. And I'm so glad I wrote that article and I'm so glad I never have to write that article again. That instead of engaging with the people who DM me, like in good faith, the, you know, closeted trans people who DM me, Hey, I want to be a man, but what about the patriarchy? And having the same conversation over and over, I can link the article and be like, Hey, I did a lot of thinking about this. So now hopefully you don't have to, I hope. Yeah. It has been considered. Don't worry. Like, this is not the gotcha that you're worried it is. Uh, Noah, thank you so much for um, being just such a delightful and insightful uh, companion on the advice-giving journey today. If people listen to this and they think, gosh, this Noah fellow seems great. Where can I read more work by him? Where would you encourage them to go? So probably the easiest way to find my work is on one of my Twitter accounts. There are two. The one where I tell people about my opinions on being trans is at Kamunoa. And the one where I do everything else is at Noah Zazanis. And they are different accounts because I have a job. Beautiful. We love to hear it. Congratulations on having a job. Uh, And thank you again so much. Have a fabulous rest of the day. Thanks. Have a great rest of your day too. I was so happy to be here. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. He's 80 years old. You know, even if he had you very late in life, like my guess is you've been out of the nest for some time now. And like the idea that he can't after like 80 years on this planet think, wow, like my kid ended up being a whole complete autonomous adult and like leading a life that wasn't just being a baby where I imagined the baby's future. 
what a remarkable time to live in. Like, how interesting. I'm sorry that he's closed himself off to that entirely. Um, he doesn't have to do that. That's not a necessary, uh, like, byproduct of his age or his position in life. He did not have to do that. That wasn't inevitable. And I think maybe the overarching theme of these letters today is, like, transphobia is not inevitable. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.